0: Welcome to the View from the Penalty Box podcast with Cam Connor. Classic hockey stories from one of hockey's toughest enforcers. This is podcast 21. I'm Cam Connor and my son, Chris. So
1: we are back, and we thought with the tragedy of the Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League team, the Humboldt Broncos and their bus crash that they were involved in, we thought it would be uh, a great time to pay tribute to the team, to share some thoughts on what it's like to play in the, in the juniors. And I know, Dad, that you had some really long bus rides yourself when you played junior played in Flin Flon, Manitoba. So we The topic of today's episode will be about the Humboldt Broncos, but before we do, we have a few things that we'll discuss, and we'll start with the fact that in, I think it was episode one, maybe episode two, that you predicted that the Vegas Golden Knights would make the playoffs, so they have made the playoffs, and as of this recording, they are leading to nothing against the Kings, so do you have any thoughts on that? And before you answer, I just want to say I noticed... None of the hockey teams that you've played for, the Rangers, the Canadians, or the Oilers, made the playoffs. So you could talk about that, and you could talk about Vegas.
0: Well, as far as the teams I played for, and and they never made the playoffs, that's pretty interesting. But I'm pretty sure that I didn't have anything to do with that. So it's just uh, a coincidence. But, uh, you know, they'll all be there next year, that's for sure. As far as the Vegas Knights are concerned... You know, I know George McPhee. I played with George, I hung around with him for many years. I could go on and on and on about my relationship with George. And uh, George is a very passionate man. He does what he has to do. Everything from, you know, I think he played at 170, 175 pounds, but he would fight the 210, 220 size guys. And if you want to throw punches punch for two minutes, He'd fight you for two minutes, throwing punches like. So George is mentally tough and physically tough, and I just knew it. Just knew he had a passion for the game. He had spent uh, I want to say ten years with Washington Capitals, so he had a good insight into the various players on the other NHL teams. I think with the knowledge he had, with the team, with the with the management that he surrounded him, so he got to pick everybody that would report to him. And so he did his homework. I said, you know, before, George is one smart guy. So just based upon his passion for the game, his knowledge of the game, surrounding himself with good people, George wasn't trying to make friends with the other GMs when he was trying to get whatever players were available. His goal was to make the Golden Knights the very best team. And if some of the other GMs got mad at him or they thought he was being ruthless or taking advantage of situations to get their players, too bad. And so I knew George would do whatever he had to get a good team in
1: there. And it's interesting to see how the city of Vegas has actually really supported the team.
0: Well, that I didn't expect. I I said to myself, Vegas, if you've been to Vegas, there's... uh, lot of venues you where you could spend your money. There's concerts and there's UFC fights and like it's it's a capital for for a lot of events and uh, Circus Soleil. I mean there's just no shortage of things to do when you get to Vegas. So, you know, hockey was it was the concept that it's gonna be like Phoenix is gonna be a lot of Canadian tourists there and they love their hockey and so automatically they'll wanna go see the games. I didn't really know You know, sure, they had to sell twelve or 13,000 season tickets, and they did that. I think if you get a team like Washington was when they came into the league, I don't have my stats in front of me, but I don't even think they made the playoffs for 10 years. They were the worst team. They were boring. They they didn't sell the game of hockey. And so I, I, I believe it struggled there for a long time. Same with Los Angeles. And so when you get a team in front of you, that can entertain you, that can win games, that can score goals. All of a sudden, this is a more entertaining hockey game in front of you, and it starts to grow on you, and you got to get back to the next one. And so with Vegas winning all their games and doing very well, that helped sell the game their very first year. So what an awesome start, and congratulations to George and uh, you know all his players and management. Just an outstanding job. You know, Chris... Yeah, I predicted they'd get in the playoffs, but i got to be honest, I had no idea that they were going to end up, uh, I don't know if it was first or second in the league when the season was over for total points. I I would never have guessed that. So I don't think there's anybody that would have been able to say to you that the Vegas Knights were going to end up second or first in the whole league at the end of the season. I think your goal as an expansion team is, you know, you just want to make the playoffs. And I've talked before, when I played at Phoenix, that our very first year as an expansion team, we made the playoffs, and that was a, a goal of every expansion team. And I believe that Phoenix Roadrunners was the first team to ever make the playoffs. And there's one of the fans that pointed out to me that Sandy Hako got coach of the year. So, you know, how bad a coach was he? That was the question, and... He wasn't a bad coach, but he was a boring coach. Um, he played a style of hockey that wasn't selling the game. We made the playoffs, but it never sold the game of hockey in in uh, Phoenix. Whereas George's team, they got an entertaining team, and they're successful. So that's what you strive for: It's a team that can sell the game of hockey
1: and win. And uh, that's exactly what the Vegas Knights have done, Chris. So your Twitter has been pretty busy. So we're going to go over to a couple comments from there. But before we do, we want to thank everyone for their feedback and reviews on iTunes. Appreciate the stars. We appreciate the reviews and we read them and they keep us motivated to keep recording. We also wanted to thank everyone who has purchased any view from the Penalty Box merchandise. We are thanking everyone by having a sale with the coupon code penalty where you will receive 25% off any orders so to order any merchandise it's view from the penaltybox.com/merch so again uh, enter promo code penalty and you'll save 25% so we'll go to your twitter account which is camconnornhl and you've you've posted a few things over the past few days One of the first ones was you did a Twitter poll where you said, when a team with a lot of potential doesn't make the playoffs, whose fault is it typically? And the three choices were coaches, management, and players. And I don't know if this was indirectly aimed at the Edmonton Oilers or not, but they were a team or are a team with a lot of potential who didn't make the playoffs. And so the results were 49% chose coaches, 17% chose management, and 34% chose players. And I asked you before we started recording, because you didn't give your opinion, I guess you didn't want to sway the results. I thought you would have said coaches, but that's not your answer. So if you want to talk a little bit about that.
0: Well, I think the key is, is you've got a team with a lot of potential. So with a lot of potential, that means that the team has enough strength on their team to make the playoffs, to go far. And when the team doesn't live up to their potential, you know, you can never just point it's one person's fault. It's the management's fault for not getting the better players. I I personally believe it's got to be shared. But as we all know, you can't fire 25 players. So it's usually the coach. And if, uh, you know, we know we got a good coach and uh, he's just given mediocre players to work with. Then you got to go above the coach and and look at the, the manager to say, you know, it's your job to get that coach some good hockey players. When I see a good team that isn't making the playoffs, I know what a good coach should do. If he hasn't got real good players to work with, and you're a good coach, usually they get them to play the players to play at another level or two above their potential is a good coach can motivate you every single game. And you just like what's happening in Vegas, they've got, you know, what were I I don't know if this is, I don't mean it to be a negative, but cast off guys that they didn't protect. So George got those players. Their coach has got them playing at another level that they don't believe that they're the fourth line players. They think, Hey, we got the coach loves me. I love this new opportunity. And you can bring out that talent. You just need people that know how to bring out the player's talent. So I think it's a little bit of the coach's fault because, again, I believe a good coach can get you to play at another level. I've seen it over the years. I've seen some pretty shitty coaches, as I've said in past podcasts, that say, well, it's not my job to motivate these guys. So they're taking the easy way up. Out and just by showing up, they think that you know they should be uh, good hockey players every night. It's way more complicated than that. So, to sum this up, I would say I gotta, I gotta, I gotta start with uh, at each level the players. I think they gotta have some pride and uh, they gotta do starting in practice. You play the same way you practice. So I've said before, you can't just show up to practice and go through the motions and then you turn it on for the game. Doesn't work that way. And it's a good coach. He knows that, so he's going to work you hard in practice. And when you have scrimmages in practice, there's going to be body checking. I I think that the players there's always they they got to take some of the blame when their team hasn't uh, reached the potential. The coach takes a lot of the blame because he's the one that says Chris Allen get on the ice, Cam Connor get on the ice, Larry Robinson get on. If you're just sitting on the bench and you're putting the wrong guys that play with heart and can make a difference on the ice and you just keep them on the bench, then it's a the bad decision on the coach's part. So the coach has got to know what each player can bring to the table and give that person an opportunity to be a leader. And then, as I said earlier, the management, if you just keep giving the players, the coaches, just minimum to work with, What's he supposed to do? You're not going to have a lousy team and he's able to bring it up to a better level. They're not going to win the Stanley Cup. They may not even make the playoffs. So I really do believe that that blame is shared between all three. But at the end of the day, you know, the manager can always fire the coach. The coach can't fire the players. He can bench them or try to send the minors. So and unfortunately, it does fall on the coach. He's the guy between the players and the management. So,
1: at the end of the day, he's the one that's got to answer for how the team does. So, how do you determine when it's time to fire a coach?
0: Well, I mean, that's a good question because there's been some good coaches that have been fired that probably shouldn't have. But sometimes the management, you know, they feel, well, there's a lot of pressure on me. We're not winning. I got to do something. So, as I said, you can't fire 25 players. So, out of desperation, they fire a good coach. For me, I think that if you, as a manager, know that you've got a good coach, I think that you've got to give him every opportunity to build that team and uh, help him every single year. And, you know, after two, three, four years, keep adding some good players and they're not making the playoffs or they're not living up to their potential, I think that's the, but you got to give them, you got to give them time. You just can't give them two or three years. Like I saw at Edmonton, you know, there was two or three coaches that didn't last very long. And, you know, the word on the street and, you know, it's easy to, to criticize after the fact, but I I, I believe you got to, you got to give them, you bring them in there, you give them two, three, four years for sure. And every year you should see them going in the right direction, not going backwards. So I think it's a case-by-case case as to when you make the move if you're a
1: GM. And the last tweet that we'll talk about quickly was you, this one actually got a lot of interest, including from Chris Nyland. He said, or you said, hockey fans curious on your thoughts on this or goalies bear game to be body checked if they leave their crease. And I would say going through your Twitter account, it was about fifty-fifty. A lot of people were saying that goalies are fair game if they leave the crease. Some some fans were saying that their equipment aren't made to be absorbing big body checks, and uh, you should leave them alone. So, what are your thoughts, Dan?
0: Well, first of all, could you uh, do? You, do you remember what Chris Island said within the
1: tweet? He just wrote, "I kind of like that idea."
0: Yeah which I interpret as if the goalie's out of the crease, he's fair game. I sort of agree with that. Um, you might talk to 100 NHL players and get, you know, 60 different answers. But I agree with Chris. There's a certain time of the game. Like, you know, if uh, the goalie's out of the net and it's the game is tied or we're down by a goal... I would maybe get in the goalie's way so it takes him a little longer to get back to his net. I don't think I would run him. Now, the only people I would run is, you know, we all know the names from back in my day. They don't. I don't see the goalies doing this today, you know, and I could be wrong. But we had, there was guys like Hextall that played net in Philadelphia. There was a guy named Billy Smith that played net in New York Islanders. For, they're just prime examples, that if you went near their net and tried to screen them, you're not even in the crease, they would take their stick, goalie stick, and two-hand you over the ankles. They would try to break your ankles, those guys. Now, those guys, when they went out of the net, you know what, if you want to give it, you better expect to get it. So I don't think I would run them too hard, but I would have, you know, I... I it would, it would be a case-by-case, case, but I probably wouldn't run them like I would a defenseman, but I, I I, I don't think I ever have. But there is a couple goalies that I don't particularly like because of the way they would play. And if you look at those two guys that I talked about, you look at the team. They had tough players on the team. And that's why I disrespect those guys because they could go ahead and – Play the tough guy role because, as you can see, in any games, if anybody touches their goalie outside the crease, it's like a swarm of bees coming after you. You're going to get – that's an unwritten rule. If somebody touches your goalie, go after that guy right away. So it wouldn't necessarily be one guy come after, we'll say, Chris Dylan who ran the goalie. You would get four, five, six, and it would it would be a big kerfuffle on that ice. But these goalies that I've talked about, and that's just a couple names, those guys, if you put them on a team that had no tough guys, believe me, believe me, those guys wouldn't be two-handed you over the ankles because they would pay a price. Every single person that got two-handed over the ankles would go after those goalies so quick, and all of a sudden they wouldn't be doing it anymore. But they knew that they could do it. Because they had all that backing. And those guys can't even fight. Hell, they're goalies, right? I mean, I remember I, well, I won't even tell that story.
1: Tell it, tell it.
0: Well, I'll tell part of the story. I I, I fought a guy one time when I was in the war hockey. I didn't think I did anything to him, but he took his goalie stick and he broke it right over my back. Like a win, too. He alka-bombed me. So I got to go after the guy. He wants to fight me. But he keeps his mask on, he keeps both gloves on, and he's got that broken half of the stick. So how am I going to hurt this guy, right? I mean, how am I going to hurt him? So I went at him, and of course, I was, probably wasn't smart, I, I took my gloves off. But what what can you do? So somehow, no, I don't even know if I should tell you, well, I'll tell you. I'm a little embarrassed about this, but this guy pissed me off because he broke his stick over me, so I got to go after him. And somehow my head ended up under, behind his back. I don't know how to explain it. And knowing I can't hurt the guy, <laughs> this is embarrassing, but I'll tell you, I ended up biting the guy, just like Mike Tyson did. So Chris, you got me embarrassed here, but I I bit the guy. And I know after the game, I had a friend on the other TV come up to me. And he said, I saw so-and-so in the shower. Did you bite him? I started laughing. I said, well, I did. Because like what can I do to the guy? That's all I could do, and it was just at the spur of the moment. So, just in case, uh, that's the only time I ever bit anybody. So that's a little embarrassing. I probably should delete that. You go wild when you fight. We
1: know that, so it's, 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 we get it. So yeah, kind of embarrassed but
0: Yeah. So just to sum it up, I think that uh, I think that the goalies, if they just go out of the net and they move the puck and they're coming back, for me personally. And, and and they just want to stop pucks. I'd leave those guys alone. But the guys that will two-hand you and play the tough guy role when they get out of the net, you know, you'll find that those same guys will try to get in your way near them and they'll do everything, you know, to prevent you from getting at that puck. And you should be able to do the same thing. So so there's certain goalies that definitely deserve to get run just based upon, you know, and, I, and I'm going back to my day. You don't see too many goalies today ever doing anything to hurt anybody in front of the net. Not not very much at all. So I would say today I wouldn't run them. But back in the day, certain guys, I
1: probably would take about it. And maybe bite them. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm never going to live that down. I can tell.
1: So thank you for uh, interacting on Twitter. Again, it's NHL. You can also send us an email at you. From the penalty box at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you so now we'll transition to the main topic today which is the very sad news about the Humboldt broncos i think as of today's airing there have been 16 people that passed away in the big bus crash Um, a lot of the players were between 16 to 20 years old there also was the head coach athletic trainers the driver a lot of people involved with the hockey team. I'll just read what you tweeted because I think you wrote it very well and succinctly. So you you wrote Dad on Twitter. You're devastated about Humboldt. Hockey at age 16 is the purest time to play hockey. They make just a stipend to get by with long bus rides to get to games. The players play hockey because they love it, because they love their teammates, and because hockey is in their DNA. Rest in peace. And then you talked a little bit about the importance of a coach in junior hockey. So you said, to Humboldt Broncos head coach Darcy Hagen, hopefully I'm pronouncing it right, a junior hockey coach is a hero and mentor to his players. He not only makes them better hockey players, but he's training boys how to become men. A coach's love of hockey takes them away from their own family again for a little money. Ask any pro who their hockey hero is, and I bet a lot would say their junior coach. Mine was Patty Janelle, who was one of the only people who said I could make the NHL. Darcy Hagen, thank you for leading our boys. Canada mourns your loss and acknowledges your dedication. So do you have anything more to say about this tragedy? And then I guess you can talk about your time in juniors and all the long bus rides that you took.
0: Well, I don't think there's anything left to be said about... uh... The humble Broncos and, and, and the and the bus crash. I know seriously, like I know when I played in Flint Flon, our closest bus ride was a nine hour bus ride away. And then we would go on the road for two to three weeks and we'd start, and for you Americans that are listening, you might want to get your map out. We would start in the province of Manitoba and go all the way across the Prairie Provinces to British Columbia playing all along the way in the various cities and in playing all the way back. And uh, by the time that three-week bus trip is over, you're pretty happy. What happened to Humboldt? I used to think about that 30, 40 years ago that, I wonder why I've never heard of any buses crashing or accidents and people killed. In Flin I remember, as I said, our closest game was nine hours away from Flin After the game, you can't sleep, you're wide awake, and uh, I would stand in the very front of the bus, talk to the bus driver for hours and hours and hours, and some guys, I guess, could sleep or read or whatever they did back in their seats, but I stood up for four, five, six hours straight just watching the roads at nighttime with the bus driver. There's been many nights. It's a two-lane highway. It's 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning, and that snow's coming down. And I can't really see much. And I would say to the bus driver, hey, could you see the roads? He'd be, Well, yeah, they're pretty much. And I was always amazed at these professional bus drivers. I said, how the heck are you staying on the road? I can't even see. You know, we'd be going through the mountains in a bus, and, and I'd be a little bit nervous, but these these bus drivers were great. All the years that I was on buses, I can't even say we came close to having any problems, you know, going out of our lane or slipping or sliding on the road or anything like that. And again, these bus drivers, they knew they had a precious cargo on board and uh, they would go the speed limits, I guess, and uh, make sure we got to our destination. But I don't ever remember us saying, well, oh, the roads aren't very good, so we're going to pull over here for the night. We just trucked on through. So I often wonder why there wasn't more accidents. And I kind of chuckle, you know, when I played in the WHA. We had guys from the Ontario Hockey League playing with us, and I overheard them one day, and they would say, oh, I can't believe we've got these long road trips. We've got to go from here to there, two cities, and you know what, it takes four hours to get there. Can you believe it? And I remember I started laughing. I'm saying, guys, out in the Western Hockey League, four hours is a piece of cake, you know, with all the travel and all the different teams. uh, I'm very surprised it's taken this long for this to happen.
1: And you actually reached out personally to one of your fellow uh, Edmonton Oiler alumni, Chris Joseph, who lost his son, Jackson. And it just shows what a small world Canada happens to be a small country because I work with his daughter. So he lost his son. She lost her brother. And so I know he appreciated you reaching up to him, how tough that must be. And he actually went and did an interview a couple days, maybe three or four days after uh, his son passed. And the reason he did that, we think, is to show people just what a special a special guy his son was. And he wanted to make sure people knew that. Well, I take my hat off to him. Um, I, I thought about that. We all saw
0: that interview um, by... Chris Joseph, and I know for me that I probably would want to do the same thing if something happened to somebody I loved or in my family, but I know that I wouldn't be able to talk. uh, So I take my hat off. He's a stronger man than me. I just, I wouldn't be able to get the words out I don't want to make a spectacle of myself, and uh, I, I couldn't have done it. He's, he's a stronger person than he is.
1: So I know that you wrote some notes about some special junior hockey memories that you have, so if you want to share some some thoughts of your time playing junior.
0: Well, you know, when uh, you and I discuss what topic it's going to be today, I decided that maybe I better just put some bullets down as certain thoughts come in my head, and I write it down. And, you know, in no particular order, there's just certain things that maybe is a little amusing, maybe it's interesting, maybe nobody cares. But I'll just tell you a few of the things that I've written down about traveling on buses. And I did more than my share in junior hockey, and I played at that same level as Humboldt. I played in Manitoba, and it was a team called St. Saint Boniface Saints. And uh, we had three- or four-hour bus rides uh, in junior, and obviously less. So I've been traveling on buses since I was about 16, 17, you know, with the hockey teams. And even when I got sent to the minors in with the Rangers, well, what do you think? They don't fly you anywhere because... Everything is a bus, So I've I spent more than my share of bus rides, that's for sure, playing hockey. And so some of the things is pretty weird what I'm thinking about here. But let's go back to junior. And back in my day, in the Western Hockey League, so that was the top junior league in Canada, in Flin Flon, we were not a wealthy team. They made us work in the mines. We worked four hours in the morning in the mines. The hockey team was subsidized by the mining top, mining company called Hudson Bay Mining and Smelting. And that's who we work for. And so we succeeded. Um, we stayed in the Western Hockey League because our expenses was written off by the mines. And as things started going downhill through the mines, Flin Flon had to leave the Western Hockey League, and they are in the Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League. And so it's a little bit different, but not being a wealthy team, we would only draw anywhere from 250 to 500 people to our games. And, you know, I don't recall what some of the other cities, but you were losing money back in my day when you owned a junior team. There's probably a few that made money today. It's not uncommon to have four or 5,000 in the stands, first rate arenas. That wasn't the case for us. So, when we would go on the road, this is pretty funny. We had one pair of hockey underwear. That's all the team would buy us. And, then, and again, it, it, it's not like today where you. it's like kind of like pajamas at so the top and the bottom. Back then, it was like one long piece of underwear with a trap drawer with a button up for your butt area if you have to go to the bathroom. And uh, it was, like I said, one length. So when you're playing junior, I mean especially when you're getting lots of ice time, you're sweating. And when the game is over and you got to travel to the next city, they would uh, just, we were told, just put your equipment and everything that you're wearing in your hockey bag and the trainers carry it out, throw it under the bus, and you travel to the next city. And maybe you get in early in the morning, so you go right to the hotel. And the trainers are tired too. So they would go to bed, and then when we get to the arena for the game, then you would carry your own hockey bag into your dressing room, and then you would um, hang everything up, and it'd still be wet from the night before. And again, we'd go on the road for three weeks. And they did not, this is accurate, wash the hockey underwear back in those days. It would be soaking wet, you throw it under the bus, and then when you get to the next game and you're hanging your stuff up, Your hockey underwear is frozen, solid, like a block of ice. And you go, oh, my God. And you'd have to pull it apart to try to be able to get it on. And then as you're putting your legs in, it's it's ice cold. And it's stinky and sweaty. And so we would have to go three weeks wearing the same underwear without it getting washed. And little to say, some guys would get pimples on their bodies. And it was gross. So... That's one of the things I remember about traveling by bus and junior. I think today what they do is, well, I don't even know what they do, because I guess if you're in one spot for a couple of days before you got to go, well, then you can wash things up. But on our day, you were gone that same night on the road. You never really stayed anywhere overnight because it would cost too much money. You just traveled to the next city. Sorry if anyone's eating while they're, <laughs> while they're listening to this. <laughs> True story. Like, it was gross, but, you know, that's you're, when you. you When as a pro, you would revolt. But as a 16, 17, 18, 19-year-old, you know, you can rough it. There's no other problem. That's just what you do, right? So, and even when you get to the hotel rooms, because we were a poor hockey team, you, there's two beds in there, and sometimes they put one or two cots in the room so that you didn't have to pay as much. But you don't care. That's just what you do. You know, again, when I think about bus trips, uh, sometimes those buses saved my ass. I know that. Um, there was a couple cities, and I may be wrong because it was many years ago, but I remember when I was with the Winnipeg Junior Jets before I went to Flint Flood. there was a city called York, the Saskatchewan, or a little town, whatever it is, and it was about a five-hour bus ride away, and we went in there, and it got to be a rough game. And Yorkton was in the Saskatchewan Junior League, and we were in the Western Hockey, so we were better. But they come out, and they played rough. And you know what? You want to play rough, I can play rough, too. So I just stepped it up a notch, and I guess they got to, the fans got pretty excited. And they when I was leaving the ice, they tried to get me, but they couldn't. And, then, uh, and again, this is why I'm not 100% sure if it was Yorkton, but this city or town... You could drive your bus right in under the rink and, um, they parked the bus like two feet from the dressing room door because the fans wanted to get at me and I quickly ran onto the bus and he couldn't get me. And the same thing happened, uh, in San Diego, I think it was, at WHA. I guess I was causing enough shit that some of the fans were after me after the game and, uh. You know, I had to be escorted onto the bus. So buses saved my butt a few times, I can tell you that. I remember when I was with that Winnipeg Junior Jets, it was kind of interesting because we had, it right off the bat, we had a two-week road trip, and our coach told us it's going to be really rough hockey, and uh, I'm 18 years old, and only Cam, you, and Blair, his name was Blair Stewart, you two are the only guys allowed to fight on this whole road trip. Now, believe me, we're going to play at least a dozen games, Come on, just the two of us, that was goofy, right? So it was so, it was a long trip. But anyways, on that trip, I think it was Swift Current. we pulled into. And as we're coming into town, bunch of people knew it was the hockey team's bus, and they pelted it with snowballs, just a lot of them. So the coaches, they said, they just pulled the bus over, and they told us to get out and go get those guys. So we were running in and out streets chasing these guys, the two snowballs at our bus We didn't catch anybody because, you know, when you're getting chased by, not that I was ever chased by cops, but I know you can run if cops are ever chasing you. So these guys, they knew that they probably couldn't take the hockey team, and they ran pretty quick. And so, you know, the coast told us to go get them. So we chased them through the neighborhoods. That's pretty weird, isn't it? I remember we were in the Miners' Rangers farm team, and this is nothing really to do with bus trips, but I was just thinking, the bus wouldn't, we, we, it, it was a standard bus. And uh, we just wouldn't, it, it, would, it, it we couldn't get it started. We're in the middle of nowhere. So the bus driver had all of us get out behind. And if you have traveled on a bus, it's, especially in the winter, it's pretty dirty in the back of the bus. So they had us get out and push this bus. And we got it going and the bus driver popped the clutch and then he got this thing running. So I remember all of us come back just blacker and hell from pushing a bus. so That's the only time I ever pushed a bus is uh, with with the hockey team on the road. One of the things is when you do travel with hockey teams, you know, these road trips, they're long, but again, you're young and you can handle it. I think as you get older, it's not so much fun. But one of the things buses do for you is we're together for X amount of hours and we would just move around on the bus and you go sit with somebody and you get to know each other through hours and hours of talking on the buses. And uh, as you get to know people as people, you start to bond together. And you start to play as as a unit instead of 20 individuals. So the buses, there were some definite benefits to these long road trips because there was nobody else but us. And that was it for two to three weeks. And again, you get to know each other. And there's some really positive times that, you know, you spent just sitting there talking to somebody who you didn't know that well, but you know he's awake and you're awake. Everybody else is sleeping, so you go talk to each other, and um, it, it it made it made for a like a, a pretty strong team. So when I when I think of some of those things about bus trips, uh, it was uh, actually kind of a blessing. One of the things though, also with the Winnipeg Jets, the guy that owned the team, he also ended up owning the Winnipeg Jets. His name was Benny Hatskin pretty wealthy man. So he would come on some of the road trips with the Winnipeg Jets. And so when you're traveling for hours and hours, they always have bathrooms in the back of the bus. So Benny would get up and he'd walk because everybody sits in the same spots on buses. So the management always sits in the front two or three seats, players behind them. So Benny would be in the front seat, you know. And so he'd have to go to the bathroom. So he'd walk to the back of the bus and Anybody that's been in any of these buses, and for the most part, they're pretty stinky back there. So Benny would go back there, and if he had to take a leak, he'd stand over the toilet, and the bus is driving, and the bus driver he had a sense of humor, and what he used to do when he figured that Benny had his pants down and was peeing in the toilet, he would start swerving the bus. Benny would come out, and he'd pee on his pants. And he'd say, what the hell are you doing? You know, and the bus driver would say, oh, a deer just ran out in front of the bus. And, he, you know, we just started laughing. And I don't even think that the owner ever caught up, but he'd do this three or four times. An old uh, old bus driver, he kept it interesting for us. So,
1: Whatever happened to that owner, <laughs> is he still alive? Today? No,
0: Benny's not alive today. But, you know, he was uh, a pretty good guy for hockey. You know, the rumor was he was associated with uh, – mobsters i don't know if that was true but uh you know it was good that benny had the money and he went and brought in some hockey teams like the winnipeg junior jets and again he was responsible for bringing in the winnipeg jets of the world hockey so hats off to you benny you know these bus trips yeah you can sit and talk to guys and uh you try sleeping and you you know i don't know about the buses today but back then Oh, you'd be on him so long, your butt would get sore. You'd have to just stand up because you're getting stiff. And if you were a vet, you got, you know, you get two seats. And if you were rookies and there wasn't enough, you have to sit with somebody else. But, you know, when you're a bigger guy, you just can't get comfortable. The seats would only go back about six inches. Oh, you bring pillows on the bus and you try to stretch out. It was so uncomfortable, but you just learned. You just you're tired, you fall asleep, and you get up and your back is stiff because you were laying, in. And you, and you have your legs across the walkway there, The and you'd have it into the other guy's seat, and so when you had to travel to the back of the bus, you had to stand up and walk on the arms of the different seats in order to get through the maze of legs sticking out. So that's what I remember about the bus trips, is, uh, you know, it was just the bodies that was trying to get comfortable, and and so for me, because well, I wasn't a vet, I was a rookie in Flin Flon, but I was uh, a tough rookie. So I said I'm having two seats and so nobody bothered me. But that's really where I learned, you know, what do you do? You can only look outside so long. So I started to learn to love to read. And on the road trips, you know, hours and hours, I would buy magazines and little by little I'd see. I like nonfiction books. And then I'd buy. And so I got to say the bus trips, the plane trips over the years, that's where I learned to start loving reading. So I got to say thank you to the bus trips for that. The coaches would, as you're driving in after traveling on buses for so long, you get to the outskirts of the city and the coaches would kick every single guy out of the bus and say, okay, walk to the rink from here. So you'd have a half hour walk to the rink. Which sometimes it was pretty cold, and you're saying, "Hey, what do you you know? It's too cold up But they didn't care. They wanted you to loosen up on the way to the rink because you got to go in and play right away. So we would walk in from outside the city, a whole hockey team on the side of the road, and uh, you get to the rink, and that's just what you did, right? When you travel on buses, like the minor leagues, like the junior leagues, they they give you money for meals, but it's not very much, and so. You never go into a nice restaurant. It's always pull over. There's a McDonald's. So you eat more than your share of fast food. Or if there was a, you know, a Mac store, a Seven Eleven, or a Circle K nearby, you ran in and you grabbed some junk food. And uh, so the buses, they weren't exactly the healthiest, you know, as far as, you know, traveling and eating in very good spots. But that's just, that just comes with the, uh, with bus rides. The other the last thing I'm going to say when I think about buses, let's go back to Flon. So if our closest game was nine hours away, so if you look at the, for the Americans listing, if you look in the province of Manitoba and you see where Winnipeg is, Flon is way up north, kind of northeast of Winnipeg. So when teams were coming to play us in Flon. If it took us nine hours to get there, you knew it was at least a nine-hour bus ride for another team to come up and play us. And so our coach always made sure that he had a tough hockey team in flint Even, excuse me, before I got there, flint had tough hockey players. And I know that at 17, when I was out at Winnipeg, I got, uh, I, was, I think it was 16 or 17, I was in grade 10. And my mother had called a school and she said, hey, the coach for the Winnipeg Junior Jets um, asked if you, is, you know, they didn't make the playoffs. they so got five games remaining. Um, there's two games in Flint Farm. Would you go play with them up there? Oh, I ran all the way home from school. I was so excited. Um, what I found out later is because Flint, I never followed hockey, as I've mentioned before. I didn't know anything about junior teams, who's tough, who's not tough. I had no idea. So I found out later that they asked four other five four or five other hockey players that played in, in the Manitoba Junior League to come and play with them and go to Flin Flot. So I would imagine that the players that they asked in their minds they were better than me. And these guys said, oh, you go to Flint, Flon. No, I don't think I want to go. These guys all said no because they knew what was in store for them when they go to Flint, Flon. I was ignorant. I had no idea that it was going to be rough hockey. So I go up there, and uh, I play my old aggressive game running everybody. I mean, I just took the body every time. I never went after the puck. I took the body. That's just how I learned how to play hockey. And if you take the body – fights are gonna come. So I was just aggressive as anybody else. So the coach in Flintflot told me two years later, he said, you know, when you came up there at 16, 17, whatever it was, 17 maybe, I was wondering who does this guy think he is? Because I you know, I just played my normal game. He said that's when he first noticed me. So anyways, make a long story short, it was it was it was tough teams even back in those days. So where I'm going with this is there is a place called the Paw Manitoba. P-A-S. And it's, I'm going to say, an hour and a half from Flin Because our team, what our coach told us, he said, I don't care what the score is after the first period. Just run the heck out of these guys. I don't care. You fight them. Do whatever, but make it miserable that whole first period. So, me and the other guys, we had no problem doing that. So, Like I said before, that after my first eight games playing for Flin Flon, I had no points and 82 penalty minutes and a two-game suspension. Well, little that I know is that other players would take a notice of me and they started to just give me a wide berth. And and as I said before, I I ended up in 62 games with lots of points and uh, just under 400 penalty minutes. And so... Myself and three or four other guys, we played aggressive hockey. And it didn't matter if we were on the road or at home. That's just how we played. But when you come to Flin Flon, you're going to get run and beat up. You win. Simple. So that season, I would say the day of the game, you know, you skate in the morning and teams are flying or, excuse me, bussing up and they're going to get in at whatever time, go to the hotel and then go to the rink. So many times when you're sleeping in the afternoon, the day of the game, we would get phone calls. We were all living with billets. And uh, the billet would wake you up and they say, oh, there's no game tonight. We'd, we'd, what do you mean there's no game? Because the weather was fine. I mean, it was snowy, but it was always snowy. And they say, yeah, the team, they've got uh, like eight, nine guys that got the flu. And so they can't, you know, they, they don't have enough players for, uh, to play the game. And we used to laugh because we would say they got the flint flon flu, because they didn't want they knew what was going to happen, and uh, it's probably like uh, when you went into play the Flyers or Boston Bruins back in the old days, that you knew when you played those guys it was not going to be fun, and so these guys they were able to you can't pull the shoot when you're playing pro. But in junior, these guys would say, oh, I'm throwing up. I'm in the back of, you know. And so the coach would say, well, I guess so. We've got four games that year. I think maybe more, but I'll say four. The games were forfeited because they couldn't field the team. And we knew that it was because uh, we scared the hell out of these guys. And so that's, there you go. That's called the flim flam flu. So that's just a couple of my stories. I've, uh, I've got a few more, but uh, I've talked enough.
1: Well, I think the flin-flon flu, try saying that five times fast, is a good way to end. So again, uh, we pay tribute to the Humboldt Broncos, and we thank you for listening. And uh, we hope you share the podcast with other hockey fans. We need your help getting our, our name out there, and we appreciate you listening. So until next time, I'm Chris. And I'm Cam. Thank you very much.